danger is stealing in as relapse hums above the den. It's Hello and welcome to episode 346 of the Thinking Poker Podcast. From Owings Mills, Maryland, I am Andrew Brokus. I will be joined very shortly by Clayton Fletcher in New York, New York. For those who don't know, Clayton is a longtime friend of the show. This is like his fifth or sixth appearance. Uh, he is an actor, a comedian, and a professional poker player. Um, you have possibly heard him uh, announcing or hosting various uh, poker events. You may have heard him previously on this show. Uh, you may have heard him on the Tournament Poker Edge podcast, which he hosts, and he also hosts the Broadway Comedy Club podcast. Uh, so he's kind of um, all over the map in a good way in terms of uh, just doing a lot of different interesting things and doing them all pretty well. Um, he actually was, uh, he finished 28th place in the 2018 WSOP main event, uh, so certainly no slouch when it comes to tournament poker. Um, we talk about a lot over the course of this interview. There is a, a strategy segment towards the end of the uh, interview. The last half hour or so is a strategy conversation between the two of us. But we also talk about uh, kind of the evolving role of Twitter in in the poker world, about uh, studying and getting better at poker, about uh, other kinds of <laughs> discourse and arguing on uh, on social media about how being uh, an actor and a comedian, well, I mean, ab about um, about doing all the things that he does online during the pandemic, right? Um, moving to playing online poker from, from live poker, doing comedy shows online, uh, just a, a lot of interesting stuff from an interesting guy. Uh, he and I both really enjoy talking to each other, and I think this is a real fun episode, so I hope that you will stay tuned and enjoy. Uh, as I said, there is a strategy discussion towards the end of the episode, so I will just say now that if you would like to hear more strategy from us, the place to get that is at patreon.com slash thinkingpokerdaily. Uh, that is where you will get a new episode up to five times a week, depending on the tier of your support. Um, it's a great way to support the regular show and also get access to a lot of bonus strategy for from some combination of Carlos Welch, Nate Mavis, and myself. So please do check that out, patreon.com slash thinkingpokerdaily. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash thinkingpokerdaily. Enjoy the show. Yeah, I don't know how I feel about playing with a mask or whatever. Yeah, it's it's weird. I've um I've done some like 
reviews you know i do these like video reviews for people where they can send me hand histories um and usually these are like the hand histories you get from an online poker site but um i i did have someone who made the final table of a live tournament that was being recorded and i was like oh this will be neat like it'll be a good opportunity to like we, we talk about like live tales and stuff that you know you get the opportunity to do and i had forgotten everyone was going to be wearing masks so then we were watching the video i was like oh we're not getting like reads off of people's faces because you can't see their faces yeah hard to get any uh what do they call them? Micro reactions, right? <laughs> when you can't see any part of the person's face. But yeah, it was, it was weird uh, watching. I mean, and this was this was like in Texas, so they didn't have like plexiglass and all that. It was just people in um, people in masks. But yeah, it was still like strange to say because I haven't done, um, you know, I haven't been going to uh, casinos, yeah. casinos myself. So it was like, I mean, I guess for some people that's just like you know they're used to that. But it was kind of jarring to me. Yeah. So they they didn't have the plexiglass, but they did have the masks on. Yeah, I guess they were requiring people to wear masks. Okay. Um, although, of course, you know, there's always people like pulling them down to drink a beer or whatever. So it's like, oh yeah, the, the mask is doing only so much uh, for sure when, under those conditions. Um, so I mean, I I started recording just so I didn't forget. But uh, I mean, if you're comfortable using this, I'll I'll just leave it in and we can uh, we can go from there. Oh, I don't know well, if you, that's if you fine. Said yeah, I didn't. That you weren't. Uh, <laughs> that you weren't planning to. Um, yeah, that's fine. No, I didn't. Uh, I didn't know we were recording, or I might have had a little more life in my voice. <laughs> 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 to me, it's different when I'm just talking to my friend. No, I, I just. I, I, I hate like you know because there's always, there's like this very genuine moment when we first start talking to someone where we're like like catching up, and I'm always sort of like, oh, we're like wasting this off, uh, you know. And then it's like once you do the like introduction, then everybody's like in you know in in phony interview mode. <laughs> <laughs> well. I prefer we start phony interview mode, and I will yeah, try to enough. use my acting skills to pretend <laughs> I'm actually happy. <laughs> uh, is there anything else that you want to talk about uh, before we're in, while, while we're still in genuine friend mode? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, just uh, just happy to hear your voice, and uh, I, you know, in a way, like everyone hates Twitter so much. Maybe we should talk about this in the interview too, but. Uh, I love Twitter because it's like, you know, I get to hear what you're thinking about and what you're dealing with and everything. I, I do feel a little closer to some of my friends because of Twitter and further apart from others because of Twitter. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, maybe I've... we can talk about social media because I know, like, you know, it, it has changed a lot. For those of us who start, like, I basically joined Twitter because of poker. I wanted people to be able to know, like, how my world series was going many many years ago and now obviously twitter has become more of a lightning rod thing it might be fun to talk about on the interview yeah no, i think that's a great idea um all right well shall i shall i welcome you please do <clears throat> uh, welcome back to the show clayton fletcher it's uh you know it, it's it's good to hear your voice yeah, Andrew, I miss you, buddy. I I haven't seen you in so long. You know, we we were in a rhythm there where I would see you at the World Series, see you at Maryland Live, see you here or there, and now I just I don't I don't see you anymore. 
Yeah, sucks. it is. You know, obviously, there's there's a lot that sucks about not having had the WSOP this year. But um, you know, a big part of it is just there's these people that you're like, and I mean, I would even consider you a better friend than a lot of these people that I'm talking about. But there are these people that you're just sort of like friendly with because, like, at least you and I, like, we'll do this. You know, like we'll we'll talk occasionally. But there's a lot of people that I'm like friendly with, but I'm not just gonna like call them or like have them on the podcast or text with them or something. So like, you know, the the WSOP is the only impetus for that social interaction to happen, and then like. That relationship it just like you know drops off uh completely in in the absence of uh, of wsop yeah and it's uh, you know as as proud as i am to have leveled up as it were in your social strata <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> it still sucks not being able to to hang out but you know i always i always uh smile when i get a a text from you or, or see something you posted on twitter or whatever just say oh yeah andrew's still out there being andrew and that makes me happy yeah likewise um and i think it's neat you know because it's um i i follow a lot of uh, professional comedians on Twitter just because that's something that I'm interested in and it is funny just because you're like friends with some of those people so it's like a weird intersection of worlds sometimes where I see something and I'm like wait is Clayton being retweeted onto my poker timeline or onto my comedian's timeline <laughs> <laughs> yeah maybe Joe Stapleton and I might be the only two that would ever cross over the both but yeah <laughs> that's awesome <laughs> that's pretty cool <laughs> um but yeah, I mean, so you and I were talking a little bit off air about, uh, I mean, I, th I think we both got onto Twitter initially um, for for poker, like poker was, was the draw, although you know, I, I used to tweet mostly from the poker table. It was like a thing to do while I was like between hands. I'd be like, oh, I'll tweet, or I'd like tweet about like what was happening at the poker table. So I really, like I'm still on Twitter a decent amount reading stuff, but I'm not really tweeting that much of my own um, my own stuff anymore uh, but it has been a nice way of just kind of seeing what people are even if you're not directly interacting with people just like oh i see what clayton's up to like, even if we're not talking that much i like see on twitter like oh he's doing uh, you know an online show or, or whatever yeah for sure it's cool to be uh, you know at least a little bit connected in that way like what i'm up to what you're up to or whatever but definitely the reason i originally joined twitter was uh to just kind of report on how my World Series of Poker was going. Probably 10 years ago, there weren't that many poker players on Twitter when I joined. Now, of course, it's like probably the primary way people notify their friends or, or backers or whoever, like what their chip stack is and what's been going on uh, during the summer and I, I guess at other times of the year as well. Um, but yeah, it's when there's no poker to play, and I mean, I don't, I don't tweet updates on like whatever online poker I'm playing. I don't think anyone cares <laughs> enough to like, sh you know. I, I definitely tweet out every time I win a tournament. If I get first place in something, I, I like to share that just so you know people know I'm still out here in the streets trying to make things happen or whatever. But uh, yeah, it's it's different uh, not not being able to like for you. You would always tell us like what's on the badge, on the name tag of, of all your dealers, and yeah. Yeah, I miss that. Yeah, I miss that too. Um, I, I do think it's funny with the like, you know, you, you'll tweet about the tournament when you win. I think this has always been a, a problem, but you know, so many people have this sense of. Um, I, I think people have an exaggerated sense of how good the best players are, or like how successful um, some people are because you get this really skewed sense of like you hear about it when people win tournaments and you don't hear about it when people don't win tournaments and you even like it's sort of if you're trying to compare your results 
I guess anytime you hear about a person winning a tournament, like there's a good chance it's someone you've heard of because you've probably heard of the like 200 best poker players in the world. So, and like, there's a pretty good chance if there was a big tournament, like there's a decent chance it was won by one of those 200 people. So you hear about it and you're like, oh, it seems like that person is always winning tournaments. And like, what you're really doing is you're comparing your personal results to the combined best results of the 200 best players in the world. And then you're like, oh, I'm not measuring up because, you know, it it seems like so-and-so is just winning tournaments left and right. And, um, it, it would be nice, you know, if, if you had a little bit more sense of, you know, what, like, because there are people out there, you know, even very good players who, like, you know, they'll have a stretch of a year or something where they, you know, just not, not winning much. And you just forget that you haven't heard about that person. You know, you're like, oh, whatever happened to, you? like, you just, it's not even on your radar. Uh, and so you don't have a realistic sense of how often the best players are losing. You only have a sense of, of when they're winning. Yeah, that's totally true. And I mean, uh, for anyone who's listening to this that doesn't know, I have I have some big headline news for you. Uh, social media, okay, <laughs> isn't real. <laughs> I know that's going to be a shock to some people, but uh, similarly, uh, if you look at the beautiful women on Instagram, uh, some of them are many using of them filters. don't always. <laughs> Many of them don't always look quite as good in real life as they do on Instagram uh, day to day. So uh, yeah, no, I think th- it this is, is similar. this is really dark, Clayton. Some people actually put paint on their faces, even in real life, to make themselves what? look better. Yeah, it's crazy. It's sick. Well, for, I don't know about you, but for me, wearing a mask all the time is quite an improvement. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> I'm getting a lot of compliments on my looks these days. <laughs> But yeah, um, you know, seriously, there is a problem with poker and people understanding like how infrequently we win tournaments. You know, if I if the average tournament I play has four or five hundred players in it, you know, of course I don't win every day or every week, even. You know, but yeah, it's I don't. There's just no impetus for me to like tweet. Hey everybody! I completely bricked twelve tournaments today. <laughs> you know, but maybe we should do that. Maybe we should be more transparent. It would paint a much clearer picture of what the life of the uh, full-time online player is like. Anyway, I just don't know if if you know what who benefits from that. Certainly not the person who's trying to show the world how perfect his life is. Yeah, you know, I, I used to joke that um, the the main reason I started this podcast was just to like get all the best poker players in the world to come on and admit to their like self doubts, because <laughs> it does. <laughs> you know, we've had from um, I don't know, like Patrick Leonard, Chris Mormon, Mike McDonald. You know, it's like a lot of people who at some point could be considered like among, even if they're not currently like at some point would have been considered like among the best players in the world. And it is very reassuring to hear them you know be like oh yeah no i'm like doubting all the time if i'm like falling behind or you know i like just that like they do have the same frustrations that you and i do for sure and you know i i think i talked about this maybe on your podcast before and i hope that it's not a you know a repeat but i think my career in the performing arts really prepared me for the constant disappointment and frustration that tournament poker brings you know uh if you if you're a, an actor say in New York City and you're auditioning for things every day it take it would take my average would be about 12 auditions to get one callback and about eight callbacks to get one job so that means 
that on average I was like booking about one percent of the things that I auditioned for. Wow. Which you know, uh, other actors who might be listening to this, they might say, "Well, I'm more around two percent." The best actors that are listening to this might say, "Well, my average is closer to three percent." Like then, those are the top, the best in the business. <laughs> yeah, those are those are bleak numbers. <laughs> yeah. So it, and then and then what you learn is like it's almost like being a salesperson. Right, it's like death of a salesman. It's just it's a numbers game. You know, if I keep trying, sooner or later. But you know, auditioning is part of the job. So you just end up trying to grind out as many. And so, and similarly, tournament players talk about you know really good tournament players say, I know if I put in the volume, I'm going to have a, a winning year, mm-hmm. which is basically true right i mean there are outliers where sometimes you know the 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 curve might just go against you and you could play thousands of tournaments and still end up having a losing year even as a, a very good player it is at least theoretically possible but the real point is that in the long run the results will come as long as you're doing what you should be doing now how can i improve that well as an actor if i go on an audition and i didn't get enough sleep or i didn't study the script as hard as i could or you know, I'm not as whatever, good-looking, tall, blonde, or whatever else the director might be looking for as my competition, then, of course, those those actors are going to have a better chance of booking the job. So in poker, the best we can do is, you know, watch as many videos, get as much rest, eat as well, and whatever else you can do to prepare yourself. But then, at the end of the day, the chances of winning that tournament are still never going to be more than like three <laughs> percent right? that's what it comes down to yeah and and you know, i try to encourage um i do hear sometimes from cash game players who are like that's one group of people that i coach are like cash game players who are interested in like getting into tournaments and like oh uh, and, and some people really do have like very much the wrong mindset of why to get or like oh a tournament is an opportunity to get a big score i'm like that is not the reason i mean if if you are just interested in sort of like gambling like as uh, for for people who really just want to gamble i mean tournaments certainly are more fun than cash games because there is more gamble there's more potential to take a small amount of money and turn it into a bigger amount of money and if you like want to scratch lottery tickets that's fine but if you are you know actually trying to be a you know professional poker player or someone making money from poker that's just a really poisonous way of thinking about tournaments i mean you have an hourly rate in tournaments just like you do in cash games um sure you might get lucky and, and get a big score but it's not like you know if, if you're playing a 50 dollars tournament even if the top prize is hundred thousand dollars or something like your hourly rate is not that high <laughs> if you're playing a 50 dollars tournament uh I mean, it might be if you're multi-tabling a bunch of them, but you know your hourly rate is—it's really a function of the buy-in. Like, it's you're, you're putting a certain amount of money up, and you're expecting to get some percentage of that. You know, ideally more than 100%, assuming you're a winning player, back. But you know, your your EV is like a function of. I mean, just like any other poker, it's a function of the stakes that you're playing. And you know, in a tournament, the stakes get higher and higher and higher. So if you do well in a tournament that has a big field, you'll eventually be playing pretty high stakes. But um, yeah, I mean, it is just you know, you're, you're sort of you're putting in hours, and over time, you'll win some tournaments and lose a lot of them. And your hourly rate will probably work out to be not that different from what it would be if you were investing the same amount of money in a cash game. Absolutely, I think that's accurate. Um, I w- I do see the appeal though, like when you buy in for fifty dollars in a cash game, you know for a fact you're not going home with a hundred thousand <laughs> that day. And so I I understand like the allure. Uh, it's kind of uh, 
a mysterious allure of of tournament poker that makes you say, well, there is the whatever chance it happens to be that this could be the day when I have my big score. But yeah, of course, over time, you're not going to make that much more over time in the long run. Like, uh, you know, I share on, on the Tournament Poker Edge podcast all the time I share my updated ROI and everything. And my career ROI for live poker is, you know, this is over a 15-year period, is right around 100%. So for every $50 I've invested, I've won $50 profit. So, of course, a lot of you, a lot of your listeners will know that a big chunk of that is the quarter million I won in the World Series a few years back. <laughs> but um, you know, that was actually only 25 times the buy-in, right? So uh, if you look at it that way, it's not that big a score compared to some of the other tournaments I've entered where I won 100 times the buy-in or more. Mm-hmm. So, But you know, I think investing that same money into you know, putting in the hours in cash games assuming that i you know had a similar skill edge it probably would have amounted to about the same amount of money for the for the number of hours i've spent at the live tournament table (laughs) there's just so many hours 600 tournaments in my life yeah i mean i think the really critical thing about i mean i do think there are certain times when tournaments and i mean the wcp main event is the the prime example of this where tournaments entice people um who are not that good at poker to play for much higher stakes than they usually would. And so being a good enough poker player that you can, you know, or having enough tournament skills, that even if tournaments aren't your regular thing, that when the WPT comes to town or, you know, you you can go play the WSAP main event and be competitive in it because you do want to be able to take advantage of those really good opportunities when they roll around. But if we're just talking about, you know, you're, you're playing online on a Tuesday afternoon, um, I think you know you're not necessarily like making more money just because I mean you're right I mean you have your variance is much higher like you have more potential upside if you do happen to get really lucky you also have more potential downside if you happen to get you know especially unlucky um, so it's I mean, it's a different variance profile but I think that unless the the tournament is drawing a particularly weak field to play high stakes which tournaments do have the capacity to do that um, yeah but I mean, they're not a, they're not a golden ticket. Absolutely not, and particularly as you're comparing live tournaments to online tournaments, you know my ROI in in online tournaments at the moment is negative over the last year. So I'm actually not making money playing. <laughs> I've been playing all this online poker, and I've you know I keep as I mentioned, I always post when I get first place in one. I'm happy to post that and say, hey everybody, look, I won another <laughs> tournament. You know, and like wow, you're such a crusher, dude. But I'm telling you, I recently dipped below zero. Uh, you know, for the last 12 month period, I've just been on a really cold streak, and it's not just because, you know, oh poor me, I'm very unlucky. It's like you know, lately especially, I've noticed the skill uh, of my opponents has really improved. You know, it was about a year ago when kind of the coronavirus started shutting everything down. A little less than a year ago now, but yeah, about a year ago um, when I had Katie Stone who, by the way, recently won her second online circuit ring, uh, and she was telling me what's going on in New Jersey. She's like, man, these games are crazy. And they're, and for the first four or five months that I was playing in New Jersey, uh, yeah, I was like, wow, this is like live poker back in 2005 kind of uh, action that we were seeing. you know. But that's basically dried up 
now, as far as I can tell, unless the players are somewhere that I, I don't know where to find them. <laughs> and so all the profits that I won in those first five months are gone because now it's just like I, I, I put the little, uh, what do you call them? Like the, the little emblems for each player and like there are hardly any fish at my table anymore. Everyone I have marked down as a shark is at the table now so wow. i guess they all have me marked as the fish because <laughs> <it's just> like, <laughs> yeah so i'm just i'm watching all your videos trying to keep up with these killers because uh the uh the boom that we had right when the pandemic started seems to have dried up for sure yeah and i think that's to be expected you know a lot of those were i mean in some cases just like with casinos with many brick and mortar casinos being open now like some percentage of those people are back doing that another percentage of them were people who were just not that good at poker to begin with and so they maybe weren't playing brick and mortar poker before but then when they had when they were like you know uh stuck at home they were like oh i guess i'll play some online poker and like it took them a little while to realize how much they didn't know and then they're like oh this isn't actually that fun i'm getting my ass handed to me <laughs> yeah unless a few of them got lucky and maybe you know you will see the occasional like wow, this guy really stands out as being like the only one who, you know, limps in under the gun with 50 blinds, you know, that kind of thing. You know? Yeah. Uh, you, you will see like once in a while, but it used to be like at least half the table was that, and everyone was really excited about what was going on in New Jersey. Uh, but yeah, even though I'm still going there on a fairly regular basis, uh, yeah, my online uh, results have not been there of late, and I just think it's because most of the players on the site are at least as good as I am, and a lot of them are better. And so it's it's tough for a guy like me. Uh, I know you didn't even play in the World Series of Poker any iteration of it, did you? I did this not. Year? No, yeah. I, I would have had to you know, travel to um, to New Jersey to to do that, which uh, I was not inclined to do. Yeah, yeah, it was probably for the best. I mean, of course, your you know your skills are beyond question. Like you're very very good in tournament poker but you still don't want to sit with a bunch of other sharks right right yeah i mean i i would have played if i had been local but it didn't seem like it was going to be good enough which i mean especially with the the whole pandemic thing like it's not trivial to just like go to new jersey like there would have been uh that, that, i think that would have been a, a significant hassle which means there would have to be uh you know i have to expect more than just like oh like these will be slightly better than average games uh you know it, it would take the, the threshold would be higher than that yeah, for sure. So, I think you made the uh, the right call there. Of course, you know, as many people know, I live in New York City, and I actually live on the west side of New York City. So, as I stare out my bedroom window, I see New Jersey. So it's it's less of a hassle for me to get there. <laughs> <laughs> it's right there. It's kind of silly. Like, I mean, I could see it right across the river. I live on the Hudson River. So as I look out my window, I see New Jersey, and all those people are right over there playing legal, regulated online poker every day, and I'm over here on the wrong side of the river, not allowed to do so, and I think that's ridiculous. Yeah. Um, the other thing I was thinking with with regard to uh, to social media, I mean, we were kind of talking about it's nice to get the insight into like what your what your friends are up to, but it is funny that you you have this image of people because you only know them through poker and then if your friends i think this is even more true on facebook than on on twitter but like you get this glimpse into their um their you know family life their professional life you know god forbid their politics like <laughs> it does um <laughs> you're just like uh, maybe i was better off like knowing less about this person <laughs> yeah 
You can say Jeff Madsen. It's okay. You can say it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm actually only vaguely aware of that uh, situation. It's more, just like there's people that I've you know became, and I think this is uh, to some degree like the magic of of the poker room. It, there are people who. Uh, I wouldn't have had cause to like sit around and talk with otherwise. And I did sort of, you know, they're not like friends, friends in the sense that I'm not gonna, you know, um, I don't call them when I need a kidney, <laughs> but uh, they are, you know, it's like, I, I like, I like that. Okay. Or like, I see the, um, I, I, I see some good in, in that person or like, that's a person I'm, I'm happy when he walks into the room, not just because he's a whale, but like, I genuinely enjoy like having him around. He's, funny or he's pleasant or, or whatever um but you 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 do sort of get that sense of like culturally we're very different and it, like this this relationship only works in the kind of limited context of the poker room so then like when you are friends with them on facebook and then you see it all and you're like yeah i did kind of get that vibe from that guy and yeah he is that guy yeah it turns out my instinct my my read was correct he is that guy <laughs> yeah i mean well you know this happens of course in the comedy world as well because like poker uh, stand-up comedy is a field that attracts people from all walks of life, different economic backgrounds, education levels, like everybody wants to be funny. And so, you know, you'll be backstage at a comedy club, especially here in New York, uh, where there's just, you know, people from all over doing comedy in all the clubs. And you, you meet people that you might never have gotten to know before. Like my good friend Dante Nero is like a 400 pound like bouncer guy and he's from brooklyn and he's really tough and he used to be an exotic dancer and you know he's like he's just not someone that you would expect me to like hit it off with if you knew me but he and i have clicked from the first day we ever met doing stand-up together and he's one of my best friends now but we joke together all the time like if it weren't for comedy like we never would have hung out in the first place yeah <laughs> so that's kind of the good thing but then there's also the uh you're being forced to uh interact with people that you probably prefer you know for political reasons or whatever just they they happen to be despicable or deplorable or whatever you want to call people that you know you don't agree with their life view uh and then you're stuck with them because you have to share the green room and uh, so that's kind of the unpleasant side to that as well have you been doing, I mean, so we talked about you kind of getting like forced into, into playing online poker. Have you been doing much online um, comedy? Like, have you done online shows? Yeah, I've done a handful. I mean, it's just, it's torture. It's yeah, it, kind it of seems like. really rough. Yeah, it's like everything else that's not as good online. <laughs> you know, it's like, I, I feel sorry for like single people that have been for the last 12 months trying to do like online dating. Uh, you know, so like you're you're having your glass of wine, but you're on a screen, you know, or you know, musicians that are giving concerts online. I've seen actors do like theater online. It's just nothing is anywhere near as good uh, online as it is obviously the real thing. But comedy in particular seems to really lose everything I love about it when you take it out of the comedy club. Uh, or or the theater, at least. But and actually, my preference is to do a show in a comedy club as opposed to the theater. Like the theater gigs I've done, obviously they pay much better than a comedy club gig would. But there's something about the intimacy and the people drinking and the the I don't know, just the whole vibe that you get in a comedy club is absolutely impossible 
to recreate over Zoom or or any other virtual means. And there are shows we've done shows like on rooftops. Uh, people did shows in Central Park. I even saw one club, Stand Up New York, did shows on the subway. Oh wow! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because you know they're just trying to to figure out a way to make this work, as uh, comedy has basically been outlawed now for almost a year. But yeah, the Zoom shows I've done, you know, I mean the feedback has been good. The 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 producers want me to do more. You know, it's just like for me personally, like I get very little out of it because I'm all about being there and feeling the energy in the room and it's just, it's all gone. Yeah, I mean, I, I might just be underestimating this because I'm sure any performing artist would tell you that they, that like the energy from the audience is an important part of what they're doing, but it seems to me that it is a bigger deal for comedians than it is for uh, for actors or for, your, or for musicians. Like, I feel like the, because, I mean, for act, I guess occasionally you're getting applause or something, but like, you're mostly like the audience isn't directly interacting with you in the same way that for a comedy, like you need to hear the laughter, I would think, or that it's going to be very discount. Like, you, cause you're used to, if you're not hearing laughter, something is going very wrong. So I would think oh, if, yeah. like, if you're now you're doing a zoom show where you're not hearing laughter just because people don't have their mics turned on. But I would think there's like a part of your brain that's still kind of like panicking because you're not hearing laughter. Yeah. Well, you know, at, at my stage, because I've been doing comedy for so long, you know, nearly 20 years, uh, it, it's not that I panic because I kind of know what's funny and what isn't, but it's just the the gratification. It would be like if you could eat an ice cream sundae and you couldn't taste or smell it at all. You knew that you ate it, but you didn't feel anything and you didn't enjoy it. Oh, this, that's, that's, this is bleak. <laughs> Yeah, that's that's what it's like. I mean, that's really what it's like doing a Zoom comedy show. It's like, I know that I wrote some good jokes, and I'm pretty sure that the people that are listening on mute are enjoying the jokes that I wrote. But it's like, it just there's no, there's there's no uh, rush for me that I always get such a thrill out of hearing all those laughs. And then the worst Zoom shows are the ones where they have a few people turn on their mics so that they can laugh. Mm. And that way you do get some kind of feedback, but then it's just, you know, because of technology, it ends up breaking my rhythm because the laugh comes a second later than it should. (laughs) (laughs) There's no way to make it work over Zoom. And they're trying and they're trying and they're trying and I don't blame them because of course they want it to work. But man, it's just get me back in a comedy club as soon as possible because it's just I'm really missing a very big, important part of my life, you know. And similarly, Andrew. I don't enjoy playing online poker anywhere near as much as as live and that, that actually doesn't have anything to do with the uh, disparity in the ROI that I already mentioned it's really it's just because you know to me the thrill is I like being there and I like seeing my opponents and I like holding on to the cards and riffling the chips and you know joking around with my opponents or whatever you know it's just all the fun stuff for me is gone and all that's left is just the math. And, you know, I'm, I'm pretty solid on the math, but obviously a lot of players are much better. But for me, it's kind of the same as doing comedy. It's it's just all the things that I enjoy the most are taken out, but like the, the actual thing is still there, but all the good stuff around it is gone. So, 
Yeah, you know, that's you know I had um, to paint such a bleak picture, but that's how I feel. <laughs> I, I used to play online poker almost exclusively when I started, just like 2004 was really when I started playing poker seriously. And so from 2004 through 2011, I was you know 95 to 99 percent online, and WSAP was almost the only exception to that. I didn't really go to like casino, just like play a cash game or something. I didn't really do that. Um, right. And then from 2011. Through 2020, I was mostly live with just like occasionally going to um, to Canada or something to play online poker. And I did like I have kind of there is a part of me that misses like there are things that I miss about live poker. But there's also I mean it's just nice to like have your own food and be I mean I don't know I just like turn on the computer and play poker like there's something pretty nice about that I think. Yeah, no, I'm like you. I mean, I was on Party Poker. I was really busy on Paradise Poker, if you remember that site. Yeah, that was a good time to be busy. Yeah, I mean, I I made a lot of money doing that. I enjoyed it a lot. And, you know, Cake Poker, that was another site where I was actually sponsored for a little while. I had done really well on that site. And, uh, yeah, I was an online guy. But even then, I was definitely a live player first. So I would supplement my live play with the uh, with the online stuff because well you know my story how I started you know playing with my mom and my brothers like I I, I my first introduction to poker was not like so many people after Chris Moneymaker uh, you know they started they started online mm. but I had already been playing live mostly seven card stud but still quite a bit quite a few years before the boom so. Uh, for me poker is a game you play live and then somebody was like oh you know you can also do it on your computer and i think a lot of players in that period when you and i started were introduced first to uh and you could see this they would first play online and then you could tell like who the online players were in the casino because they didn't know the rules like how to raise or, or they, you, they just didn't know how to handle chips yeah you could spot them like they might be pretty good at the game but they weren't good at like the mechanics of the game no, and I think it probably has been good for the people who chose to put in this work, which not everyone did. I mean, I think for, for some people who got forced online because of the pandemic, I think some of them um, were just like, oh, online poker isn't for me, or like, I can't, like, I feel like I'm playing blind. Like, I'm so used to relying on, on physical tells that I just, I, I don't know what to do. And uh, I think that f- for some people, who who you know wanted to find a way to win online? It meant that they had to learn the math of poker in a new way, or like they had to learn fundamental strategy because they were they were so accustomed to. Nate and I talked about this on last week's episode. Um, they were so accustomed to making their decisions primarily based on either you know, explicit tells that they saw, or just a lot of stuff that's happening at a subconscious level, where you can just sort of feel that someone is is or is not strong. And of course, when you're online, you have little or none of that, and so um, you do need to. Uh, but I mean, I think ultimately, like if that's the only thing, or that's like the main thing that you've been relying on, it is nice to to be forced to develop that skill. I mean, I guess it'd be kind of like if you lost the ability to see for a while and then you know you probably you would your hearing would get much better and you would probably retain some of that even once you got your eyesight back i think it might be kind of the same thing for um for poker players who who 
have always relied so much on physical information if they do put in the work to get good at just understanding the mathematics of the game then they are going to have this whole new tool available to them when they do return to playing live poker yeah i mean i think you just described what my life has been lately you know the first half of the pandemic uh i was just crushing like you know final tabling half the tournaments i was playing there were just so many um, recreational players on there that i didn't have to do that work and now in the last six months or so things have gotten tougher every time i try and so it's forced me to go back to basics and doing solver work and you know studying the videos that you make for tournament poker edge and other you know really good teachers where they can kind of help me deepen my understanding of the math and just kind of understand the game in a in a different way where i always had basic you know kind of i guess fundamentals math like kind of the basics but now that so many people are using solvers and you know i don't want to say that anyone's using rta but it's probably but a safe are. bet that, <laughs> that at least some of my opponents are using rta which i don't um you know just being up against that level of mathematical i don't know solidness right it has forced me to uh you know try to keep up with the joneses as it were and uh you know it's been a real challenge and i agree with you once we do go back live if i can combine what i was already good at before that gave me that high roi in my live tournament career now with being forced to kind of sharpen my fundamentals because of the situation i'm in playing online during the pandemic i think putting that all together i'm going to be a better player than i ever was before i probably already am but it's it's just hard to test that theory without being able to like sit down live and, and stare across the table at someone yeah you know that that to me is the real test what um is there is there anything uh like strategy stuff that that's come up or that's been um like what, what's been your focus when you've been studying lately yeah so i've been looking for spots to not see bet mm, um that's a good one. i learned I learned that I, uh, I, you know, I was just generally too aggressive, and the first place you can start with "Am I too aggressive?" is, well, what do I do when I miss the flop, or, you know, how often do I check back when I don't miss the flop, right? So, kind of trying to balance more. Basically, I was c betting way too much before, and which would lead to me double barreling way too much before, and then triple barreling way too much before. And I don't know that I was necessarily doing that as much live because of the thing you already said which is sometimes i watch my opponent when the flop comes down and i see that she loves it and i'm like okay well, so i'm not going to see bet now because very clearly it feels like my opponent hit that flop you know and i just don't have that i can't use that skill in the online game because i can't see my opponent's reaction <laughs> to the flop <laughs> so instead i have to say well mathematically um is this a flop that i should be betting some of the time, all the time, or never, and then kind of going back and working with, you know, just the robots to figure out what the right balance is, and that has kind of helped me decrease my overall aggression factor, which I know that probably most of your students have the opposite problem. Like, I think most players 
are not aggressive enough generally and i happen to be one of the ones who you know not to i want to exaggerate a little just to prove the point but i would be more likely to try to win every pot right. <laughs> than to try to win none of them right so uh just finding that brake pedal and figuring out uh when to back off and just say look you can't win every pot so it's it's just as good to lose less on this pot than you otherwise might have and that has improved uh, my results tremendously just uh giving more free cards on the flop yeah i think that's like i think for a lot of people it's um automatic to bet if they flop well uh and i think that's also you know just like you shouldn't necessarily be trying to win every time that you flop poorly it's also like there are times when checking is better than betting and that's not just to slow play when you have an extremely strong hand it might be you know you flop top pair with a bad kicker even top pair with a good kicker depending on the board texture bottom two pair like there are times when fairly good hands are still only fairly good and like you don't necessarily want to play a big pot with them and you know a a really big a big part of this is that even when when betting is profitable, it doesn't mean it's the most profitable thing that you can do. So you know, like when it comes to c betting, especially if you're c betting against a big blind caller, it will almost always be the case that they're going to fold often enough to a small bet that betting any two cards is plus EV. But that doesn't mean it's the most plus EV way to play the hand with hands that have showdown value. Like checking could be more plus EV. Even with bluffs, you know, checking and bluffing a later street might end up being more profitable than just immediate betting the flop and, and taking that profit and that's going to be more true the better your opponents are um the, you know, the, the more important it is to sort of recognize that like what is my what is my baseline betting or checking frequency on this board going to be yeah and that's the stuff where kind of really digging in uh you know you have a whole series on tpe about c betting i've studied a lot like i've watched the same videos repeatedly just to make sure that this stuff kind of gets more uh nailed into my head because some of it's fairly complicated um even though you are so good at explaining things in a clear way that seems almost like it was designed for my brain to comprehend i still have to go back and do it again and this is how i was in my early days i didn't use uh videos and websites i was an old school like rita sklansky book kind of guy rita ed miller book kind of guy um i mean talk about in the beginning of my career of like learning no limit hold'em uh that was my my technique but i wouldn't just read these books once i mean i would read it once straight through then read it once again with a highlighter pen then read it once again with a you know with a a a regular pen so that can take notes in the margin Uh, like i was preparing for uh you know a doctorate exam or something because that's how seriously i took the game um and you know trying to translate that level of uh you know just thoughtfulness that i would put into my poker study when it was just books uh i guess the best i can do is watch the videos again and again and make sure that i pause them when i like especially like you'll even have spots in your videos where you say i want you to pause and think about (laughs) your answer before you continue but even times when you don't say that or when the other coaches don't say that i'll pause and i'll I'll say, all right, Clayton, check in with yourself. Are you really paying attention to this video? First of all, has your mind wandered at all in the last five minutes? If so, back up five minutes and watch it again. Because <laughs> uh, you know, we all do that. You know, you got other windows open or somebody walks in the room, like whatever, you get distracted. You got to make sure you're really 
concentrating and then try to answer the question and predict what the coach is about to say you know before it actually ends up being said i think helps me it's what i guess what you would call active active listening mm -hmm. and it's just you know for me educating myself this is really uh what i've had to learn to do and so yeah it's it's becoming it's showing up in my play if not my results but it's showing up in the way i'm playing now i'm just not quite as aggressive as i was before and basically i learned that i was being too aggressive before so i've been tr i've been actively trying to find spots to tone down the aggression and yeah it's not just checking when i miss but sometimes it's checking the flop when it's a good flop for me not necessarily a great one but a good one like top pair and you hit your card you still don't necessarily have a three streets event how you kind of hand so you might be better off checking the flop and then betting the turn in river or even checking twice and then putting in a bigger value bet on the river mm -hmm. that tends to make players more suspicious and just you know but not doing the same thing every time either that's a big part of it is you have to really mix it up and so there's a lot to think about and that's why the computers are still better than we are yeah so i actually um i, I tagged a couple of hands that we might want to talk about prior to this and one of them happens to deal very specifically with this concept if you're up for a little uh hand discussion definitely let's do it all right, so this is from uh, Fairly Deep in a $200 tournament on America's Card Room. Um, this is like their their Sunday $200 tournament. It doesn't draw nearly the field that the Sunday Million does, but it's you know they, they don't have a lot of $200 buy-in tournaments on ACR, and most of them are really small fields, so this is a, it's a nice tournament to be deep in. Um, I have 25 big blinds, which is probably just like slightly below average. Uh, I have King-10 offsuit, in the cutoff so it folds all the way around to me and i min raise which i think is probably pretty uncontroversial yeah that's fine i mean i do know some players are just shoving here but that i think it's a bit excessive unless the ante is really high yeah i, I wouldn't be inclined to open jam 25 big blinds but you know that's one of those it's it's probably plus ev like if your only options were shove or fold i imagine you'd be better off shoving but um those aren't your only options <laughs> Yeah, obviously we have it's no limit, so we can bet what we want. Yeah. So yeah, I I think it's uncontroversial. Uh, so I'm in raise to two big blinds, uh, the button and the small blind fold, and the big blind calls. Uh, the big blind has 62 big blinds, so he has uh, he has me well covered. He will have an above average stack even if uh, he doubles me up. And we go to the flop. Uh, I have king of spades, ten of diamonds, and the flop is king nine three all clubs. So I have top pair. I uh, do not have a club draw. There's like five and a half blinds in the pot and 23, 24 big blinds in the effective stack. Um, he checks. And this, I think, is, is well, I mean, I, I chose to check behind on the, the theory that we've been talking about. Like, despite the fact that we flopped top pair, I don't think it's really a case where I want to play even I mean, we're looking at a stack to pot ratio around four, so it wouldn't be completely unreasonable to get all in with one pair, but on a with with top pair. But my kicker's not that good. The fact that it's a monotone board and I don't have a club is kind of a problem. Like this isn't really a hand that I want to play a big pot with, um, nor is it a hand that benefits that much from fold equity. Every once in a while, you might cause a random club to fold, but I think like for the most part, if the villain has a club, he's probably not folding to a small flop bet, um, and it's nice to get a live ace to fold, but that's not a huge part of his range either. Um, it's only one 
card. You know, like there's only one overcard to the king out there. So like, I think a lot of people put a disproportionate emphasis on like because there are some hands you'd like to fold out. I think a lot of people just focus on those and they're like, well, I don't want to give a free card to a club, so I have to bet. It's like, well, that's true, but you also don't want to make the pot larger if the villain already has a flush. You don't want to make the pot larger if he has a better king than you do. If he flopped a set, if he flopped two pair, you might even end up, I mean, if you're not prepared to go to the felt with this, you could even end up getting bluffed off of the best hand as a result of betting the flop. Like he might check raise, he might call the flop, and then the turn goes check, check, and then he bluffs the river, and maybe the board has come down scary for you. Like there are ways that you can lose the pot even when you have the best hand. Yeah, you know, it takes me back to Harrington on Hold'em and other books that were written in like 2003-ish. And, you know, kind of the studying that I was doing back then and it just like really got ingrained into my brain this idea that the biggest mistake you can make is to give your opponent a free card to beat you, right? But we don't, we see now that's just not true. Yeah. Like if you check here, yeah, you're giving your opponent potentially another club and then he'll have a flush and we won't, right? Um, there is a chance of doing that, but there's also a lot of benefits to checking here. Like, you don't have a three streets of value kind of hand. So, you can bet the flop and the turn and then check behind on the river if you want. Right? That's a, that's one way to play this. But really, I think you shouldn't be trying to get all in with an SPR 4 when all you have is a king and a 10 on this board. So, yeah, that's a spot. That's a great example of a spot where you know, maybe a year or two ago, I would be literally always betting with King-10 here, especially with no club. And now I see the value of, of checking back sometimes. Uh, you know, you deceive your opponent. He's never going to put you on a king but because you checked, right? I don't know. I mean, I think that depends on how sophisticated the player is. Uh, the tr and this is like one of the big things that I've learned from from working with solvers. Like monotone boards have really low c-betting frequencies. Um, I I don't know for. I mean. I've sometimes gone too far with this concept, but I wouldn't be surprised if like a, a solver is only betting thirty to forty percent of the time here. Like that they're they're checking the majority of the time on this. Not I don't just mean with this specific hand. I just mean like range-wise, we're probably only like the solver wise, may yeah. only be betting thirty to forty percent, despite the fact that we're you know the preflop raiser and we do have a significant range advantage on this board. Uh, and that checking range is certainly going to include a lot of king x. Like it's not going to have a checking range of sixty percent that doesn't have any top pair in it. Um, so I think the villain, if he recognizes like this is a spot where I'm supposed to have a high checking frequency, then he really shouldn't be taking a king out of my range because I checked the flop. But you're right that many many less sophisticated players will think that, which just increases your EV. Um, dramatically from checking the flop. If they are just going to say like, oh, you couldn't possibly have anything, he checked the flop, like that gives you a lot of incentive to check the flop. For sure, yeah. I mean, anytime you can you know, basically tell them you don't have what you do have and they'll believe you, that's a good thing, yeah, right? Yeah, that's a good way to put so, that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you know, at the same time, like the way they think, they might say, well, if he had a king, he would want to protect his hand. And I think that that's another key concept that I'm learning from solver work is that this idea of protecting our hand is not nearly as important as we once thought that it was. When you think about protecting your hand, you're assuming that your opponent necessarily has a draw. And so many times in a heads-up pot, your opponent does not have a draw. That's right. So why are we so, trying so hard to protect above all else when there's so much else to consider? 
So it's not that protection is never important, or equity denial is another way to say protection, right? Mm -hmm. But um, uh, yeah, I think that it's it's only one part of the equation when you try to decide, uh, you know, what your best play is going to be. Whereas I think 15, 20 years ago, it might have been considered the most important consideration. If you start with the theorem that giving your opponent a free card to beat you is the biggest sin you can commit, <laughs> <laughs> right? Then, of course, by nature, protection becomes paramount, right? So, uh, obviously, we had to rethink all of that as the solvers got better and better at the game, and we're all trying to catch up to the robots. Yeah, one way I like to help people conceptualize this is, um, yes, protecting your equity in the pot is important, but protecting your stack is also important. And the problem with betting is now you're potentially putting your whole stack at risk. Um, you know, if, if you've got 25 big blinds in your in your stack or 23 after the race, and there's only five in the pot, so you know, are, are you ready to put 23 big blinds at risk in order to try to protect five? Because if those 23 go in, you're not likely to be in very good shape. But at the same time, if you're not ready to put the 23 in, you are going to fold the best hand sometimes. Um, so that's how things like you are kind. In, in some ways, you're protecting your equity by checking because you can lose equity by getting check raised. Like getting check raised is not a good thing here. Um, even if you plan to call the check raise, it's still bad for you that it happened. Um, so you know, like that is also something you have like, there's a lot of things you have to protect against you can't just pick one thing that you're especially if i mean you can but it's not good strategy <laughs> to just like yeah pick one thing you're worried about and say oh, i have to protect against that that one thing at all costs right uh, yeah exactly because there's a lot more to consider than just that one thing and a one another thing i would consider in this spot that makes checking more appealing is against an opponent that has you so well covered and has so many chips generally in the tournament that player might be uh, more inclined to check-raise bluff mm -hmm. than an opponent with a similar stack to yours might be inclined, mm -hmm. right? So I don't know, you know what the uh, HUD stats are for this particular opponent, but all things being equal, you might not want to open a door for a big stack as much as you'd be willing to open that same door for someone with your stack. So, yeah, in other words... He, it doesn't cost him that much to check-raise you, but he's basically leveraging all 25 of your big blinds if you decide to call. Yeah. And uh, you, you mentioned earlier, like, it, it can be frustrating if you check and then, and then the club comes. Um, and you know, the other way you can think about that is if the turn was going to be the club, whether or not you bet. And if the turn is going to be a club, maybe you're happy that you didn't put more money in the pot. You know, like uh, you can sort of think of this. I think I tend to think of this as a PLO concept, not that I'm a great PLO player, but the idea that um, because in PLO, you can have a really strong made hand, like you can have a set even, and you're not always a favorite against a draw. So sometimes I think PLO players talk about the idea of like drawing to a safe turn. And that's one thing that you're kind of doing in, in these spots when you when you check a sort of a hand where even though you, your own hand value isn't going to change on the turn finding out whether or not the turn is a club is going to give you a lot of information about what your hand is worth um and so you know if, if you check and the turn ends up not being a club your hand is now worth a lot more than it was on the flop um, the likelihood of your opponent making a flush by the river goes can goes down considerably also you've 
you've promoted your own hand by checking the flop because you are going to bet a lot of your stronger hands. Like I'd be much more likely to bet ace king than king ten here. Um, I'm going to be more likely like if I flop a flush, I'm often going to bet that. So if I flop a set, I'm probably betting that. So when I check the flop, I'm weakening my overall range, which means that king ten relative to my range is now a stronger hand than it was because I'm subtracting a lot of the stronger hands from my range by checking. King ten is a hand that I can treat as more valuable on later streets. It, it moves closer to the top of my range and therefore has has more value in a pot that has gone check, check. Yeah, I have nothing to add to that. That's brilliant because, yeah, I mean, look, you, you have top pair, which for all the hands you're going to bet three times, top pair shouldn't be on that list too much on a monochrome flop. Mm-hmm. But now that you've checked, it just puts your hand into a new higher category. So... Yeah, that's very well said, Andrew. Uh, so I did check, and the turn is now the Ace of Spades. So this is one of those, you know, uh, there are many turn cards I don't want to see here, uh, mostly like Aces and Clubs, which is still not the majority. Like the majority of turn cards, it's important to remember, are not Aces or Clubs. <laughs> most most turn cards will not be those. Uh, but like maybe 30 to 40% of the deck are turn cards I don't want to see. Uh, and this is one of them. So we still have uh, five and a half big blinds in the pot, 24 in the stack, 23 and a half in the stack. Um, he checks. I still don't really see a reason to bet. I mean, I think if anything, the hand has only gotten weaker now that there's an ace out there. Yeah, I mean, I, I suppose some... Uh, there will be some aces in opponent's range that would have three bet pre-flop, especially against a 25 big blind stack. Mm-hmm. So... I mean, you could certainly remove the best aces from his pre-flop range, right? Yeah, um, but I, th- so I, I doubt means- he's ever folding an ace. Right? I mean, given that he's up against a cutoff raise, I don't think he's ever folding an ace pre-flop. So even if we subtract out no. like, ace-10, you know, he still has ace-deuce through ace-nine. Yeah, which is plenty of aces, exactly, especially yeah. because they're both suited and offsuit. Yeah, so yeah, that's a good point. But yeah, we don't think he has ace-jack or ace-10, right? So he may have just flatted you with ace nine pre, but I, I know a lot of players that would probably also uh, put that into a three betting range at least some of the time, especially given that you know you're opening from the cutoff. But yeah, obviously he calling with that hand is fine as well, so he will do that some of the time. But the very best aces are out of his range. But yeah, you know, long story short, I don't want to bet either because. It, we might as well just take our sh- our showdown value such as it is. Mm-hmm. Um, but I guess, you know, when I check again here, I basically have a bluff catcher, right? And so if my opponent bets on the end, you know, if the river bricks off and, and our opponent finally bets at this pot, it, the fact that we've kept the pot so small makes folding the best hand less of a mistake, right? Right. Like the fact that we are going to have a tough decision when faced with a bet is part of why we don't want the pot to be as, as large. Um, because I, I agree. I mean, I, I think the implication there is that we're not necessarily calling a river bet, which I agree with. Um, I think that, like, I think I can easily have an ace here myself. So I don't think that King 10 is necessarily like the top of my, um, the top of my range. In fact, I'm going to want to bet a lot of hands that are weaker than this one as a bluff. Like, 
often the the best hands to be passive with are not your weakest hands. They're your medium strength hands like this one. You, you generally want to bet your strongest hands to make the pot larger. You want to bet your weakest hands to get fold equity. Hands like this are good for checking because they don't especially want to make the pot larger, nor do they benefit all that much from fold equity, which again is not to say they don't benefit at all from fold equity. Like there are some cards we'd like to make the opponent fold, but many of those cards the opponent's not going to fold anyway, and there's only so many of them. So like the gain from fold equity has to be weighed against the risk of making the pot larger, which I think is on balance not a good thing for us. Yeah, for sure. So assuming it's a brick and he bets on the end, uh, I would basically just look at the sizing and what I've observed about this opponent and his sizing. Like some players bluff, you know, exploitably they bluff uh, with bigger sizing than their value bets. Mm -hmm. And so if I notice something like that and this guy puts in some huge bet on the river, if he's that type of player, I might be inclined to call. But if he's a, a you know a typical player in this tournament, he probably doesn't do that. So you can basically just say, well, he's giving me three to one. Is a pair of kings good 25% of the time? It's probably right around there. So you're indifferent then between calling and folding. So yeah. you can just go ahead and fold and preserve your stack. But if he bets really small, I will probably have to look him up, which makes me exploitable in that way, but not for that many chips. <laughs> well, and the smaller he bets, like, I would have to consider the possibility he might be value betting a worse king, at which point you don't, like, if he just min bets the river, he can be going pretty thin for value, at which point it might actually matter that you have king 10. Like, your hand might not be a pure bluff catcher if he bets really tiny on the river. Yeah, we've checked twice. He might even bet worse than a king for value. Yeah. If he, a smaller bet, you know, as you like to say, it's less polarized, so it could just be a, a thin value. So, yeah, I would have to make a curious call if it's a tiny uh, percentage of the pot. And, you know, just by the fact that we've kept the pot so small, it's not that bad if I end up calling and he shows King Jack. It's like, well, that sucks, but at least I didn't lose a ton of chips on this pot. You know, right. it's it, it, there. there is a lot of value in keeping pots small when you aren't really sure where you stand or, or how how well your hand is doing range versus range overall. Mm -hmm. And I can also envision value betting rivers, right? If the river is like an offsuit deuce and he checks to me a third time, I think they, even with an ace on the board, I still think, you know, it's like, I would expect that he's value betting most of his ace acts on the river. Like I would consider this hand worth a value bet if the river's a brick and he checks. Yeah, absolutely. We didn't examine that scenario yet, but yeah, in the event that he doesn't bet the river, I think it does, you know, he's now checked to us three times and I think a pair of King looks pretty good mm -hmm. in that situation so yeah i agree so that actually gets to my final question uh, i i did check behind again on the turn and the river is the nine of hearts so the final board is king nine three all clubs ace of spades nine of hearts so it's uh my hand my you know my, my 10 kicker doesn't play anymore it's my hand is just kings and nines with an ace um i do not have a club in my hand and the villain checks a third time so you know, <laughs> uh, I guess you know, part of my is like, should I be trying to go for value here? And and if so, you know, from what? Yeah, I, I mean, I guess it's hard to find a value target in this situation. Suppose, I mean, I suppose a pair below nines. Yeah, I would. I would think most of that. Like, I'm pretty sure he should be three betting any pair pre-flop. Um, either. Like he might want to make a small three bet with like aces or kings, but if he has, you know, pocket twos, he should probably just be shoving preflop. I don't think he should really have too many pocket pairs in his range, but that's not to say that some people won't. But since I only had twenty five big lines to start the hand, I think he can just shove, you know, smaller pocket pairs. 
No, agreed. Absolutely. I mean, uh, what is the uh, the card on the board that's below a nine? Oh, a three. Like a three. Yeah. yeah so if he has a three, then he's yeah. That I think that might be one of our only possible value targets here, especially because our kicker doesn't play. Um, yeah, you know, he might end up if he has a king, he's going to call you, and then it's just going to be a chop anyway. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, I I don't know. I I feel like I would probably check back here. Maybe I leave a few chips on the table if he has a three. But it's like you say, what 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 does he have to call call us with? Yeah, I, I mean, know. I do like it's not impossible that he might even just call with like queen high. So I mean, I I did check back and he ended up having queen deuce of spades, uh, and it's like it's not impossible that he calls a river bet with that um i mean he does beat bluffs if the bet is small enough you know maybe he call i think part of my concern on the river is i am kind of vulnerable to a check raise also but i know that's um it's a very fishy reason to check back the river like i think a lot of people worry way too much about getting checked where they're like oh if i check or if, if i bet like what if i get raised um but i do think the bet is already pretty thin it's not even a guarantee we have the best hand like i could certainly see him checking a better king on the river some people even check an ace on the river i think that's often a mistake um he could be checking a nine legitimately looking to check raise like i i do think it's we don't have to get raised that often considering that there's not a whole lot of value in the bet in the first place and especially like late in a tournament, you do want to try to avoid variance. Now, this is not, I mean, this is only going to be, you know, variance on a two big blind bet, but nonetheless, I mean, I only have 25 big blinds. So, uh, all things equal, like I want more than a tiny edge in order to put chips in the pot because, um, the, you know, the, the variance sort of eats away at the edge <laughs> you, you would rather have um at some point you would rather have no variance and just check rather than you know eat some variance in order to get an extra 0.01 big blinds or something yeah so yeah this is a great hand for us to discuss in you know in, in the sense that we were just kind of talking about some of these concepts and certainly a year or two ago i would have been putting probably a pretty large bet in on the flop probably checking back on this exact turn and then calling a lot of bets on the river just because i used to be really afraid of getting bluffed and uh yeah i just i would i would feel like i had enough showdown value even though if he bluffs on the river yeah well let me say something else because you were talking about getting worrying about getting check raised and i think that's generally uh, most players aren't check raised bluffing enough Hmm on the river so the odds that a check raise would end up being with worse than what we have is pretty slim i think generally i know this is a 200 dollars tournament so it's one of the bigger buy-ins on that particular site i get that but still most players aren't really check raise bluffing rivers very much at all yeah in my experience I so that. i wouldn't worry about that very much not yet yeah i i, I do kind of want i i think there's a fair chance i i should have value about this um but partly i like talking about it because you know so often the strategy segments on our show and just in general like people zero in on big pots you know and they're like oh what about you know i get should i have shoved 100 big blinds on the river should i've called this huge river bet <laughs> um and i you know, i kind of like looking at a hand we're just like yeah i just min raised pre-flop and then checked it all the way down like <laughs> let's have a half hour conversation yeah. about that you know <laughs> No, I mean this. This is like the nuts and bolts of the game. Right. I mean, you're gonna play a lot more pots like this one than the ones where you have a decision whether to shove 100 blinds on the end. Yeah. Right. I mean, this is the kind of hand that you really, you know, you have more opportunities to screw this one up 
in the long run than you do those other ones. Even though the other ones are much bigger pots and more memorable, these are the kind of hands we really need to study. Um, yeah, I, I don't. I'm not saying I would necessarily bet the river because I still don't really know what value targets we have. But you know, a hand like he has, queen, a queen could be good. So a tiny bet might be called, and so you could have eked out a little bit more value, assuming that you don't have to fear the check raise, right? Um, but still, I'm not sure how many value targets he has in his range overall, or for that matter, how many check raises this particular opponent will have. I mean, you're always folding to the check raise, right? That's the key. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm definitely folding call. if he raises. Um, yeah, so we're not bet calling the river, so he wins every time he bluffs. If he finds that check raise bluff, he always wins the pot when he does that. Yes. So that's got to come out of whatever value we could get from betting and having him call with worse. Exactly. So I don't think it's a, a big number no matter what. <laughs> right. Yeah. You know, the, the advice that I tend to give people when it comes to value betting is like most people are, are they're too loose and they're too passive. So the, the fact that they're too passive is why I'm not really concerned about getting check raise bluffed all that much. And the fact that they're too loose does kind of mean that when I think I probably have the best hand, I think good practice in general is just put the bet out there and like let your opponent worry about finding a hand to call you with. You know, it, it's different if, if there's like legitimate question whether you actually have the best hand but when you're in the kind of spot that you're like boy i really think i have the best hand here it's just hard to see how he calls with worse like how many times have people surprised you with what they called with you know like people That's people true. want to call yeah. you yeah because that way they find out the ending of the story yeah if you don't if you don't call, you'll never know what happened at the end. <laughs> That's the thing. You know, <laughs> people really are not playing poker just to maximize their EV. Even many professional player, poker players, you know, if, if they're really being honest with themselves, maximizing their EV is not the only reason they're at the poker table. But certainly for many recreational players, I mean, they're not even claiming that that's why they're at the poker table. And calling is more fun than folding is. Um, calling at least presents the opportunity of winning the pot. At the very least, they get to see your cards, which is intrinsically rewarding. Like, people want to call you. Yeah, uh, curiosity killed the cat, but it doesn't stop us from having it. Yeah. Uh, well, thanks for talking that through with me, Clayton. I think that. that yeah, let me ask you: Is this the smallest pot you've ever discussed as a strategy segment? <laughs> I mean, it, it would be hard to find a smaller. Maybe there was one where it was like small blind limps, big blind checks, and then they just check it down. But yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> I'm honored. I'm honored, <laughs> Andrew, that you saved the smallest pot for me. <laughs> no, it's good, and it does really uh, speak to the uh, you know the the discussion we were having before you you brought up the hand, which is about when should we kind of pump the brakes a little bit? When should we not go ahead and see bet? And these are the things that I've been working on very hard in the last few months, trying to. Uh, be more selective in my aggression because it's very natural for me to just uh, you know go pedal to the metal that's kind of my my natural style somewhere between vintage Gus Hansen and <laughs> 2008 Tom Dwan is kind of where I live uh, personality wise uh, I'm a skydiver you know so uh, trying to adjust that for the online game where people are playing so well 
against my moves that may work very well in a, a tournament like the main event. They're just not they're not getting the job done in a five hundred dollar tournament on WSOP.com. So uh, figuring out when I can be a little bit more I don't know, I guess it's more of a finesse game that needs to be played in order to, you know, come anywhere near GTO. Yeah. Yeah, finesse is a good word. Yeah, so that's what I've been working on. So this was a really fun hand for us to look at together. Awesome. I'm glad to hear it. Um, is there anything... I mean, I want to give you a chance to talk about your uh, your podcast, but is there anything else that you wanted to, to talk about? Oh, no, not really. Just, um, you know, I, I appreciate uh, everybody that uh, interacts with us on Twitter. I love reading your Twitter threads, my Twitter threads. I guess one thing I kind of did want to jump into a little bit because you you almost touched on it earlier. Uh, I'm of the mind that it's healthy to talk to people with whom we disagree. Mm -hmm. And, you know, just the other day, you and I were on Twitter. I was more lurking on one of your conversations with other people, but I was trying to insert myself into it to understand what you guys were talking about. (laughs) Um, But, you know, bottom line, it was a political discussion. The exact topic isn't that important. But I'd like for you to share your thoughts on uh, how do you feel about following people or interacting with people who you know you don't see the world through the same lens as they do? Yeah, that's a good question. And this is a big... um, (laughs) I I could easily do another hour on this, and unfortunately I don't have time to. But... um, so you know you know this i guess a lot of people listening to this know this like i was a very serious debater when i was in in high school and to some degree in in college like i've i've taught debate like i i mean i i very much believe in the value of um you know a clash of ideas as a way of like better understanding issues yourself arriving at something like the the truth um and i think that you know that requires encountering it requires an openness to the possibility that that you might be wrong um and you know which requires like hearing from people who see things differently from the way that you do i think that um social media and just the media i don't think it's specific to social media like i think that tv news is also really bad about this i know i think it matters what opinions and like and whose opinions that aren't yours you expose yourself to because i think a lot of people they do see um they're they're shown certain representations of the left or the right or something like that and they're actively encouraged like you know like a tucker carlson is going to go out of his way it's not that he'll he'll never have a a, like self-identified leftist person on the show but it's going to be someone that he knows is going to look clownish to his audience so like if he's putting that person on the show he's deliberately amplifying their voice because he thinks that they're going to badly represent the people that he disagrees with and i think a lot of people um allow themselves to be so like i don't follow everyone i disagree with (laughs) like i'm very selective about like i do want to follow some people that i disagree with but they need to be people who i respect because i think that the danger of it otherwise is that if the guy is just like you know he he forms his opinions badly and uh I i think the danger is that i'm then going to 
take that person as being broadly representative of being like, oh, that's what, you know, all right-wing people think, or that's how all right-wing people think or something like that. And I think that's actively um, counterproductive to, to the purpose. Like it, it solidifies my confidence in my own opinions in a bad way where I'm like, oh, everyone who disagrees with me is just like a flaming racist. So, you know, I'm not going to follow uh, a like super racist person on Twitter just to sort of find out like, oh, what do the white supremacists think? Like, <laughs> right, you know, yeah. like there are, um, I, I don't think that you have to, or I, and I, I don't think it's, it's, it's healthy either for your, um, Maybe not everyone you know ruminates on on like how to argue with people as much as I do, but like I don't think it's good for your mental health, and I also don't think it's good for the overall project of like better understanding the world or like better arriving at a truth to um, to, to to follow people who are not going to be persuasive to you. Uh, I do think it's important to try to find people. So like for me, Tyler Cowen is one of these people um, who's a sort of I mean he's not even really that right wing, but you know he he has a very like conservative economics minded view of the world and he does tend to like look at things very differently than i do and so it's interesting to like through his podcast to see the world through his eyes and then he'll bring other people on the show who also tend to represent viewpoints that are different than my own and i find that valuable because fundamentally i respect tyler cowan even when i disagree with him i tend to think that like he is um, his heart is in the right place in terms of trying to find answers to things. And if he's arrived at a different answer from me, it's not because he's badly intentioned or trying to misrepresent things. It's legitimately because he sees things differently. And I don't feel that way about like a Tucker Carlson. Like I think Tucker Carlson is a, uh, and there's a zillion examples of this. And I mean, I'm choosing him like you could find examples of people like this on the left also this is not a thing that's that's exclusive to the right but i think there are a lot of people who um who are not even making an attempt to, to arrive at the truth like they're they're just uh showmen you know like they're 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 just sort of putting on a show for clicks or for views or, or for whatever and like they're actively trying to um antagonize people who disagree with them and that's good for their for their ratings like actually there's a thing i remember did you ever see that movie you, um, you probably did the um uh private parts no actually i never saw you'd be surprised how many movies i hadn't seen though i just thought because like howard stern's uh, you know yeah yeah i remember it was a book i never read the book and i didn't i didn't watch the movie but i'm basically familiar with with his story anyway so yeah but there's like there's a scene in in private parts i mean this is not really like that um that incisive view but like i saw that movie when i was like 12 or something so like it was kind of mind-blowing to me at the time uh where he's like there's this argument between his producer and the network or something about that like whether they're going to leave him on the air and they're like oh but you know the average the average uh you know fan of stern listens for like 40 minutes or something and they're like what about all the people that hate him it's like well that's the thing sir they listen for two hours and like I like <laughs> so some of these people are like their whole purpose is to to like get you riled up and they don't like they're not trying to get you to agree with them like it's actually good for them if you if you like hate them and so when when people you know like people will retweet um people that they that like really get on their nerves and they think that they're like somehow um like dunking on them you know they're like oh look this person said this dumb thing and i'm now re i'm like retweeting them to show how dumb they were and it's like that's not like that's their whole business model they're not trying to say smart things they're trying to say things that'll get themselves retweeted and they don't really care whether they're being retweeted by people who agree or disagree with them like they win either way there's an old saying there's no such thing as bad publicity yeah 
And so if you retweet someone, you're giving that person publicity, whether you mean to or not. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, there's, you know, you, you remind me of a show that used to exist on Fox News uh, television. It was called Hannity and Combs. And this show was supposed to be, we're going to show the perspective of the right and the perspective of the left. And we have two co-hosts with differing op op uh, opinions. And one of them is a charismatic, well-spoken, dynamic, uh, experienced television professional. And the other one is Alan Cole. <laughs> which, uh, <laughs> and it was it was exactly what you were just talking about. Like they were clearly like they knew that they, the deck was stacked against Combs from the beginning. And they, they had him sort of represent like the uh, what they thought was the wrong viewpoint, but not really represent it in a good way. Like it wouldn't be fair to have a debate where one person is like an expert debater and the other person is just going to give his opinion. You know, that's that's not fair. And that's that's what they did on that show. And that was kind of the beginning of when I thought, oh, maybe this network isn't so fair and balanced after all. <laughs> yeah, I was actually, um, and I, I, I can't use names here because these these people would, would be well known to a lot of the people who listen to the show. But um, right. I, I was talking to a, a friend of mine who uh, is, is fairly right wing and his views on things and we were having this similar conversation about like you know following people that you disagree with on on twitter and he was like you know there, there's two people that even though i disagree with them i would never stop following them on twitter and, and then he told me their names and i was like oh no no those should not be the two like i don't even follow those people like those i don't want those to be the people that are representing like leftist views side, to you that's right, not yeah. no those, those people are clowns don't follow, like the, don't let them be your <laughs> yeah yeah, well, I know it's a little off topic, but uh, I definitely wanted to ask you that on the podcast because, uh, you know, of course, I respect your opinions about a wide variety of topics. And, and uh, you know, I, I wanted to and clearly you could talk about it for an hour because obviously I struck a chord um, by asking you that. But um, yeah, I, I, yeah, I have very strong views on that. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, obviously. And, and, you know, people get really fired up, especially about political issues nowadays which is kind of a change i mean i think 20 years ago hardly anyone was really paying this much attention to politics and now people are basically dedicating their lives to like what is the president going to do today and you know, a lot of it had to do with trump just being such a lightning rod but that could have good effects long term that people care more about you know just keeping an eye on the government than they used to which i think can't be bad since they're supposed to be representing us yeah, although that again, I do kind of worry. Like, what are the things that people are paying attention to? You know, it's um, that I, I could go on another hour rant <laughs> about this. Okay, also, well, but, I know you don't have you time. Know, like, yeah, it's um, I I would love to have this to to take this conversation further uh, a different time. <laughs> yeah, well, let's let's plan on doing that for sure. Um, yeah. Well, yeah. Thanks. Thanks for taking the time for now. Um, and yeah, let's we'll, we'll follow up on this. I'll also share. I'll, I'll put it in the show notes, and I'll share with you. I, I did write something on this a little while ago about that. Um, the I, I think I called it like balancing your information diet, um, which was kind of about like how to choose the people. Like I do think you should be you know trying to find find the voices of people you disagree with, but like how to choose those how to choose those people. Um, so I'll I'll share that with you, and I'll put that in the show notes as well. Well, that's cool. Yeah, I'll definitely check out you know that piece that you wrote. Um, 
one reason I wanted to ask you this question is because you know, a lot of people know that I host the Tournament Poker Edge podcast. But what you might not know is that I also have another podcast with the owner of Broadway Comedy Club here in Manhattan. And we recently interviewed a comedian who was in Washington on January 6th uh, and, uh, and is a Trump supporter and attended the, uh, the rally at the Capitol oh, wow. and everything. Yeah, and so obviously that was a, a, a time when I was speaking with someone who has very different views on politics than I do. Um, but you know, as host, I try to be—I I try to be respectful of my guest and let and let him share his opinion, even when sometimes you can maybe you know, see the smoke coming out of my ears <laughs> as a result of doing that. Um, but I have to admit that some things he said made more sense to me than I would have predicted. So uh, yeah, I don't know. I guess I, I try to be open-minded, but. I also try not to be a sucker, so I think you want to find that middle ground uh, between the two. But it was a definitely an interesting interview and definitely uh, got a lot of people talking, um, which is good for my podcast, but also I think good in general, uh, just that we are talking. You know, the, the people that went to the uh, Capitol that day, believe it or not, they were not all... Uh, white supremacists, <laughs> right? Some of them were just kind of, uh, well, let's just say misinformed people who uh, bought a lie, and and I'll leave it. I'll leave it there because I don't want to get too deep into this uh, political rabbit hole. But definitely can check out Broadway Comedy Club Radio. Uh, that's the name of my comedy podcast. We've also interviewed. Uh, now, the comedian I'm talking about is Kevin Downey Jr. He's a well-known uh, headline comedian, very, very funny guy, uh, and he also is a, an avid Trump supporter, so it definitely made for an interesting conversation, to say the least. Uh, we've also interviewed really famous people like Amy Schumer, uh, Russell Simmons, uh, you know, Pauly Shore. Like, they've all been on the, on the podcast as well, and so that's free, and it's on every every possible podcast platform as well as my poker podcast tournamentpokeredge.com where I routinely uh, talk about how I am the biggest Andrew Brokus fanboy stan in the world and I'm not even ashamed to admit it <laughs> so <laughs> I mean you don't put out one video that I don't watch at least at least once wow. so yeah I mean I'm, I'm just I'm very hungry for uh, poker knowledge and I feel like the way you teach is uh, just perfect for the way I learn. So uh, we're a match, buddy. Well, that is high praise. Thank you so much. And uh, yeah, it was good talking to you on, on our show. Like, I feel like the last couple of times we've talked, it's been on your show, which I, I mean, I, I appreciate you giving me that um, that that platform. But, you know, I want to make sure I, uh, I reciprocate. So I'm glad we got a chance to do this. Yeah, you know, I, I'm thrilled to be on this podcast. Every time is just as exciting as, as the first time. And as you know, I was a fan of your podcast long before we met. So uh, this makes me happy. I always get a little giddy when you ask me to be on your show. So literally anytime, pal, anytime. Uh, it, was, it was truly good to talk to you and hope you enjoy uh, the rest of your, your evening and however long it is in, until we speak again. Thanks, Andrew. You too, bud.
need some kind of pill Or the devotion of a car the light of the fair passage of a bill And who will sign us into law I know you won't